It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we have got Mark Sims, CEO, Riv Capital. Mark, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Riv Capital, for those who haven't seen the news lately, uh, you guys are the investing arm to Scott's, like Scott's Miracle Grow. Is that an accurate description or how would you describe it? Yeah, no, the best way to think about it is, um, you know, Scott's obviously uh, back in 2015, they started uh, buying up some uh, cannabis uh, input supply brands. So General Hydroponics, et cetera, they made a series of acquisitions, been highly supportive of the cannabis industry, but but more as an input supply house. Um, a couple of years ago, and, and that's where I hail from, I was, I was over at Scott's, but we started looking at you know, kind of where, where are their opportunities within the, the cannabis value chain? And, and obviously, Scott's on the consumer side, Lawn and Garden, knowing the power of brands. Um, they said really kind of the, the folks that own the brands in the cannabis space are the ones that are going to um, kind of the most revenue and, uh, and margin is going to accrue to them over time. And, and so they went about looking at, is there a way that they could get, uh, you know, exposure into the, uh, the leaf touching space? Um, so technically, Scotts uh, provided a $150 million convertible loan. That was the initial investment um, that would allow them to convert, I believe, up to 42% was the official was the initial uh, um, loan that they gave them. So, so they are a key stakeholder. Uh, they are not a shareholder. Uh, they do have three board seats. Uh, on the on the RIV board, but they are not involved on a day-to-day basis operationally. And all the capital, which again, may be interested uh, to the listeners, all the capital that they supplied was restricted cash. Um, and, and so it couldn't be used for either OPEX or CAPEX in a plant touching business. Uh, the great thing about the Attain acquisition that we just completed or are in the process of completing, we completed the first close, um, just due to the nature of that restricted cash, that is able to pay equity holders directly. Uh, so all the capital that uh, Scotts had provided that was quote unquote restricted uh, was able to be used to uh, pay the principals in the in the attain deal. So it actually worked out well. So then all the the other cash that uh, Riv has on the balance sheet that is unrestricted, we can use to uh, fund opex, capex, and uh, potentially further further deals. And I definitely want to talk to you about that attain deal in New York, quarter billion dollars for, I think, four locations, huge market. I want to talk to you about the implications and impacts of that. But before we do, I am curious about the um, initiation of Scott's. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall and heard that conversation and how, how that conversation evolved. Would you say that it was more about the, the revenue opportunities or the or the product that they had and the opportunities to sell. And I know that sounds like one and of the, of the same, but attain is, has nothing to do with Scott's products. That is a revenue play. Whereas Scott's products have a chance to get into the market, especially with home grow, which I want to follow up on. So mm-hmm. um, again, is it, do you think that this, this uh, introduction of Scott's coming into the cannabis space is more about the revenue opportunities or about getting their products into the cannabis industry? Um, 
I, I think it's more about the long-term revenue opportunity. Uh, that that would be my take. And I think, you know, on analyst calls and such, um, Jim Hagedorn, the CEO at Scott's, has, has kind of said the same thing. Uh, again, I think they they really have been successful um, with, I'll call it the picks and shovels play, right, which is the, the Hawthorne, Hawthorne gardening segment. Uh, they did a billion three last year, I think. They'll, they'll be south of that. Uh, this year, obviously, due to the uh, the challenges in in the, the cannabis industry and um, you know some some of the oversupply issues, um, but but really, again, they've created a nice business there in the input supplies. I think it was really as we did the analysis and, and looked at the overall value chain, and, and when you look at the value chain of most crop based industries, uh, the people that kind of own and sell the genetics, they make a lot of margin. They make a high margin rate. Uh, maybe there's not as many dollars, but if you look at the, the kind of the branded side of the house, so the people that own and manufacture the brands and then the retailers make the most margin dollars. And then typically the, the input supply providers, the farmers and the processors are the ones that kind of have the lowest margin and the lowest dollars that can accrue to them within, within the space. So I think it was really kind of that longer term exposure that Scott's was was looking for with respect to um, the industry overall. And, and, and I, I would also say, and again, their, their actions have, have kind of highlighted um, their support for the industry in general. Uh, so obviously as an input supplier, um, obviously you wanna see more people grow um, and, and you wanna help as many people to do that as well as possible. Uh, and obviously you want them to use your products. But they've also done a lot of things to just in general support um, the industry uh, at the state level, so state ballot initiatives, but also at the federal level where they've lobbied, you know, quite substantially to uh, try to get, you know, safe banking passed because they know that would be super helpful to the industry. Uh, it's not necessarily going to free JP Morgan up that they're going to jump in, but a lot of these regional banks uh, will um, kind of start to, to uh you know, participate, and, and that'll be super helpful for the industry, you know, the growers, the, uh, you know, even the hydroponic retailers, uh, the cultivators, the dispensary owners, all those folks. So I think, you know, that's where they just have really shown a commitment to the industry overall. But, you know, their investment in RIV is really kind of that long-term, you know, growth uh, play um, as it relates to, um, you know, the, the industry overall. There seems to be a huge opportunity with homegrown. Do you know if there's lobbying to allow for homegrown in states like Washington, where it's currently a felony? There was a lot of these warehouses, these picks and shovels, you go buy your dirt and hydroponic stores. And then once uh, recreation came on board in Washington State 10 years ago, those warehouses were gone. They either left downtown for cheaper locations or they just went online or they just went away entirely. Seems to me like an opportunity to sell a lot of products to home grow. Are there lobbying efforts in order to push that? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, typically, and again, I don't know the specifics in Washington, but typically when, um, you know, and I think, you know, as an industry overall, we should be supportive of, of home grow. But, but typically, um, whenever kind of ballot initiatives were, were coming forth, um, Scott's was always pushing for, for the homegrown element. Obviously, you know, the, the historic part of the business, right? Scott's, Scott's and miracle Grow. it was all about helping the consumer. 
you know, have a, a, a great garden, have a great lawn, whatever it is. So it was all, it was all about that kind of consumer focus. Uh, and, and in the pandemic, they really saw that a lot of folks, either from a food security or a food safety perspective, you know, the, you know, that there were like 19 million gardeners that came into the, came into the, uh, into the category. And, and, and so I think that the same can be true for the, for the home growth space of like, you know, having people participate and understand, you know, not only like how enjoyable it is to kind of grow the plant, but also um, how hard it can be so that when it's done well, they can really appreciate, you know, kind of like home brew versus, you know, getting a great craft brew kind of, you can appreciate kind of how hard and challenging it, it can be to do it even on a small scale, let alone on a large scale. That's why I think it's a money grab because most of these people are going to go out, they're going to buy the equipment and then they're just going to try to sell it on the secondary market because they realize like, oh, I'm not going to make you know cigarettes. I'm not going to make my own alcohol. Some people do like, like going and making craft brew or wine. I've done both, um, but I don't grow my, you know, um, anything, whatever. I don't, I don't even grow cannabis anymore because the wholesale prices are too low. As soon as it hit $3 on the wholesale level, I stopped growing. So at some point, I would imagine it's a, it's a money grab, but people aren't really going to follow through because it's not easy. It's not weed. It's, it doesn't grow like weed. It's, it's right. actually very, very challenging. Um, so, so I would imagine there's a lot of, of, of push where you're at to get your first mover advantages. That $150 million doesn't go very far. You spent a quarter of a billion dollars on that attain deal in New York in and of itself. I would imagine you have more information than I do. That tells me that deal alone tells me you guys aren't anticipating federal legalization, federal legalization to happen anytime soon. If you're going to spend that kind of money, 250 something million dollars on one location, one state, I think four locations, a lot of money. And so would you agree with me that you, you guys aren't anticipating federal legalization to happen in the near term? Yeah, so, so, so I know I've told this story to a couple of folks, and I think it was um, Chris Hagedorn at, uh, at Hawthorne. He, he had purchased some old High Times magazines for just to like read for fun. And there was one in, in 19 from the mid 70s, and it says federal legalization right around the corner. So, so a lot of folks have been a lot of folks have been uh, made made to look silly by trying to predict when the federal government's going to act. But but I think I feel pretty confident to say, you know, we're, we're kind of three to five years out from from any kind of meaningful federal legalization. I mean, you know, that can mean a lot of things. Permissibility in terms of the safe banking, I, I think that has a good shot of of making it through Congress this year. Maybe it doesn't survive the Competes Act, but I think people I've talked to think it, it could potentially after the election uh, get passed through and kind of lame, lame duck Congress, which would be great. Uh, so I think maybe kind of these baby steps, and, and that's probably the best way to go about it anyway. Um, the other thing too, I would say is, you know, when you think about federal legalization, what does that mean? Um, the way we've analyzed it, at least when I was uh, at Scott's and, and even having discussions since then, you know, the con Congress passes an act that says this happens. Well, that doesn't mean that there's not a tremendous amount of work, i.e. a lot of time that's going to be needed to put in a regulatory framework that then actually gets, you know, put into, it gets all the public comment, gets all the, uh, you know, gets refined and, and corrected. And so the way I think we think about it is there's going to be more of a glide path approach 
where even if they kind of say, yes, it's, it's descheduled and, and, you know, federal, even interstate commerce is, is uh, allowed. I think kind of the, uh, the glide path that they'll give for states to enact that, um, maybe similar to the 2018 hemp bill where, or farm bill, where they said, you know, hey, you just have to, yes, you can do interstate commerce, but you got to do it within the, the confines of your state license, et cetera. I think that will that will be the reality. And how long is that glide path? Is it five years? Is it ten years before you kind of really start to see, um, you know, everything roll back to California or, or you know Iowa, wherever, whatever uh, kind of analogy somebody wants to use for a crop based industry, um, or you know, Colombia, right? You hear people talk about all oh, this is just going to be imported in fifty five gallon uh, drums. You know, I, I think the glide path on that is is pretty long. Um, and I think part of part of what we see as the opportunity in New York is to really build a brand. If you think about the two cultural epicenters in the U.S. that drive a lot of trends, it's it's really kind of California and New York. Um, and so being able to establish kind of a, a solid business and, and brands uh, in, in New York, you know, influences the Northeast as, as well as, you know, can start to influence the, the rest of the country. From your um, experience, just looking at sales or, or any any data that you can pull from between California and New York, there's this East Coast, West Coast rivalry in the cannabis space right now, where New Yorkers think that they're going to be the dominant, uh, you know, money centric location for for all of the cannabis expansion, whereas California argues they're the culture, they're the epicenter, there's they they are what drives the demand. Um, Fifth largest GDP in the world is, is hard to argue against, too. Do you foresee a market in New York that outweighs that of California? Um, I, I'd, I'd have to check on a per, you know, so I think that the, the one interesting thing in California and kind of looking at those West Coast brands that are popular is, is a, a big key to our strategy. So, yes, we, we kind of acquired New York, but but really kind of the second part is we really want to take some of these West Coast brands that we think have been um, have shown the ability to have success in the most competitive market in the world. Uh, so most sophisticated consumer, most competition, both on the licensed and unlicensed side. And so folks that have been able to prosper there, you're like, okay, that's, that's a pretty good microcosm of what a, a real market would look like. Um, and then you bring them to New York where you basically have, you know, kind of limited license state with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, businesses still to be built there. Uh, we think that's a winning combination. You know, I, I think if you look at the data, I believe, you know, I, I don't know the population. I believe California has a larger population. Obviously, if you count tri-state area, probably not. But the, the incidence, I believe, the incidence of usage is higher in California than it is in New York currently. Um, so I think, you know, on a, on a per capita consumption basis, in the short, you know, in the next three years, it's probably still California will, will reign. But I think in terms of the growth and the ability and seeing kind of this nascent $500 million medical market in New York grow into the three to $6 billion, whatever number you want to believe um, uh, adult use market in, in New York, I think you're, you'd be hard pressed to find a more exciting market than New York. Um, also with kind of hopefully, you know, all the, you know, travel picking up again, I want to say in 2019, like 160 million people visited New York, uh, not only from the, you know, from the US, but all around the world. 
So again, I think for, you know, if you're brand building, um, having a presence in New York is going to be, is going to be pretty important. And then you brought up kind of the money side. I think that's another reason, like if you have a solid brand that's somewhere in Manhattan, um, you have a solid brand and, you know, in dispensaries, Brooklyn, New York, or Brooklyn, the Bronx, wherever, um, that's where a lot of these money Wall Street guys, if, guys and gals work. Um, and so if, if they're seeing that brand, they see how, how kind of popular it is. I think that can also start to influence as big banks do move into this, um, is that can also start to influence like, who do they think are the right brands that they want to back? Um, so again, ours is maybe a, a merging of your, your East Coast, West Coast um, uh, question where you, you take kind of the authenticity as well as the success and, and the ability to grow at scale, right? We talked about how challenging that can be. A lot of these folks have shown an ability to grow at scale. Um, and then you marry that up with the, the money men, men and women in, uh, in New York. And I think that can be pretty powerful. Where is the investment being driven right now? If we look back in the rearview mirror, we can see 2019 predominantly driven by MSOs and activity. And then fast forward, we've got the pandemic. We've got a lot of um, uh, issues right now. Cannabis companies are, and every other stock is is uh, not doing very well. Real right. estate is starting. You're starting to see some some uh, some collapse, not collapse, but maybe overturning in Toronto and New York. People are deciding to move out rather than paying higher rents. There's some. And, and that's inflation, right? Inflationary pressures are putting a lot in the market right now. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And I'm wondering where that pivot in order to stay relevant is going to from the drive for MSOs. And then we saw a lot of producers and processors being acquired. Where is the investment focus now? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what I've seen is, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, we've had, a, or I've had a lot of calls have been in been in the role a couple months, a lot of calls of, of players that are saying, Hey, you know, it's going to get stormy or it already is pretty stormy out there. You know, do you want to build a bigger armada? Right. And, and so I think that's, that's kind of the, the thing that could consume a lot of your time uh, trying to assess, like, is this, a, you know, would it be interesting to marry these things up and, and kind of bring these pieces parts together? So I think a lot of folks are trying to, um, I think, uh, you know, people are, are trying to build, build and kind of grow their business organically, but they're also taking a look at saying, how do I potentially find partners that, um, how do I find partners that, um, you know, can help me either, you know, accelerate my strategy and, or just, you know, kind of give me a, a, a bigger armada, like I said, to weather the storm, uh, you know, kind of uh, in, until, some macro event, which I think is really what's going to, what's going to drive the whole sector higher is if safe banking could pass, I think that could be a good catalyst for potentially more capital company coming in, but also uh, a trend that Congress can actually do something to help the industry. And then maybe, as we said, you know, over time, they can kind of chip away at the other aspects of, of the large, you know, Booker or Booker Schumer deal that's, that's out there, that's probably just too big to digest for, you know, a 50-50 Congress at this point. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about um, your, your current state. Did you guys do um, a DSPAC? Did you guys, are, we, are you guys public? 
Yeah. So Riff Capital was so Riff Capital previously was Canopy Rivers. Um, and uh, Canopy Rivers was the venture capital arm of Canopy Growth Corporation. Uh, so they had, as a venture capital arm, they had some investments in plat touching businesses in Canada. And actually, we still have some of those in our portfolio, as well as they invested in some ancillary cannabis companies. Um, but about a year and a half ago, the, the RIV team said, hey, we really think the growth and the opportunity is in the U.S. plant touching side. So they went through a process to really kind of um, detangle or, or kind of figure out how to cut themselves off from canopy growth so that they could truly be kind of standalone. Uh, and in the process, uh, we're able to kind of improve the balance sheet or put about $200 million, I think, Canadian on the balance sheet. Uh, and then when they were able to pair that with the, uh, the $150 million from Scott's, they, they went out hunting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. And it, so the U.S. is predominantly where you guys are focused at. There's a lot of uh, overspeculation in Canada and, you you know, with Aurora and Canopy, the uh, amount of greenhouses they basically had to just get rid of because of uh, excessive um, optimism, I guess, uh, yeah. has led to um, individuals pulling, pulling money out. Simply put, they're going to try to put it into maybe crypto or something that has a higher... Right higher return. It used to be that you'd go to an IPO and that was your form of speculation. And now it's penny stocks and crypto and uh, everything else is, is going crazy. Um, I, I like I like asking the question uh, well, in terms of publicly traded companies, what's the biggest impact to your bottom line? Is it going to be banking like you mentioned earlier? Is it going to be 280E to uh, immediately have your, your margins look a lot better and your profitability? Uh, is it going to be interstate commerce? What is going to be the biggest impact um, in terms of like what your hindrance is from the federal government standpoint? Yeah. If one thing changes, what is the biggest impact? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, for, for us in the short term, we just we need to execute our plan and that'll help our bottom line because we got to we got to grow the business. But but I think as an, an industry and as a whole and, and kind of RIV as, as a member of that, I, I think the 280E piece in my mind is so punitive um, in, in the way that it impacts cash flow, right? So, so obviously everybody reports kind of EBITDA numbers, which, which are fantastic. But then when you actually look to see, okay, how much are they actually putting in their pocket? And it, it's really, really punitive. Um, I was glad to see it. I don't know if it's going to start immediately, but New York, you know, a lot of these states also follow kind of the 280 model despite the fact that, you know, people are operating legally within their state, New York has, has talked about kind of not, not doing that and allowing you to deduct kind of normal business expenses. But I think that would be a huge, um, you know, huge help to the industry in terms of just being able to have additional cash flow that you can, you know, churn back into the business that you're not always constantly having to go out and, and try to raise capital, um, that, that you can actually just reinvest in back into your business. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be investing in anything outside of the producer or processor or retailer? I know the cannabis companies have been hammered. Um, one of the uh, apps that, that we have, Toro Alerts, got 147% trading cannabis stocks last year um, using artificial intelligence and machine learning. There's a lot of AI and ML in the industry. There's a lot of data like headset. There's a lot of opportunities um, to utilize that data 
is that something that you guys are looking at for, for acquisition opportunities or is it st- simply the producer processor retailer? Yeah. It, interestingly, we're kind of going from this. So um, the Riv Capital side, so the legacy Riv Capital portfolio, I think there's a, we have 11 companies. Headset is actually one of them. So Riv Capital was an investor in, in, in Headset. Uh, LeafLink, although it's the international LeafLink. Um, so they had a lot of these kind of ancillary cannabis investments. Um, really, the intent now is to um, you know, continue to manage that portfolio, but really the focus is going to be on um, kind of cultivation, processing, and, and, and retail. And really brand building is, is kind of the, the main key of, of all that. Okay. Um, if investors want to find out a little bit more about Riv Capital, um, what's the ticker symbol or website? How can people get more information about you and, and uh, Riv Capital? Yeah, so it's it's rivcapital.com is the website and, and has, I think there's a, a link there where you can click on it and it'll send a, a message to our investor relations team and uh, we can absolutely, uh, you know, touch base and, and tell you more about what we're what we're doing in, in New York and, and beyond. Okay, yeah, and we'll put uh, a link to Riv Capital and then uh, Mark's uh, link to um, from LinkedIn so you guys can bug him as well. Absolutely. With that, I think we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Mark Sims. He is the CEO of Rib Capital. Mark, thanks again for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Thanks, Josh. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.